Welcome to the Housing Justice Podcast. I'm Molly Reisman. I'm an advocate for people experiencing homelessness. I work for Los Angeles County and worked for nonprofit organizations before joining the county. And I'm Lorraine Catley. I am also an advocate for people experiencing homelessness. And I've been spending the last several years of my life doing social justice work with homeless services providers around topics of childhood trauma, domestic abuse, homelessness, and advocating for those with lived experience. Now, Molly, I know this is our first episode, and so I really want to get into why. Like, why are we making this podcast? So I've worked on homelessness for quite a few years now. And when I first started working on homelessness, we were in the era of the 10-year plans to end homelessness. So in the 2000s, this was really popular to do these 10-year plans where we thought we would end homelessness in 10 years. And it's hard to express how firmly I believed that we were going to end homelessness and it was just a matter of when not if, that this was something that was inevitable, we were going to do it, and we were going to end homelessness because it was a simple equation. That there were a number of people experiencing what we call chronic homelessness, long-term homelessness with disabilities, and that if we just provided enough permanent supportive housing for those people experiencing chronic homelessness, we would have enough resources to solve homelessness for everybody else because all of the data showed that people experiencing chronic homelessness were a pretty small percent, but they used up over 50% of the resources because they had such high needs. Um, And permanent supportive housing was a really effective intervention for them, and it was just a numbers equation. If you have enough supportive housing and you end chronic homelessness, then you'll have enough money for families, for youth, for people who are only experiencing homelessness temporarily, and we would end homelessness. And for me, that all changed in 2014. Um, In 2014, we were doing some really good work. We'd started the coordinated entry system, um, which was really about trying to match the people who needed supportive housing the most to supportive housing. So how do you identify the people who are the most vulnerable and connect them to the supportive housing unit so that you can end chronic homelessness? And we had created this system. We were connecting people to more housing than we'd ever connected them to before. We were getting more people off the streets than we ever had before. And we knew they were the right people because of this system. Um, And so we were doing this really good work. And we had all this data showing that we were doing good work. But anyone who was in L.A. in 2014 knows that the streets looked terrible, we had so many people on our sidewalks. It's when we started seeing encampments all over the city. Um, And those of us who were working at the systems level on homelessness were just scratching our heads going, why are we housing so many people? And so many more people are becoming homeless and we have all these encampments, what's going on? And then in January, 2015, there was a homeless count. Homelessness went up 12%. Um, And everybody knew something was going horribly wrong. For me, when I look back on my career and how we approached this, that approach of thinking it was an equation and it was a numbers game and that we could get ahead of homelessness by just providing enough housing really ignored the deeper roots 
of what the true causes of homelessness are. And that's the idea of the podcast is what are those deeper roots and how do we confront the deeper roots of homelessness to come up with solutions that are going to be more meaningful and have a bigger impact on our community. Lorray, I have learned so much from you as a leader, and that's why I knew I couldn't do this podcast without you as my partner. So can you tell me about how you ended up working in homelessness? Yeah. So I was born in the Queen of Angels Hospital, which was in Hollywood and has changed the name recently. And then I was brought home to the projects. And so that's where the instability really started to take place. If you look into uh, the history of the Pueblos projects, they were the most organized gang related to how they done things similar to the mafia. And so I'm glad I made it out of there. Um, (laughs) And the journey went on to where my dad would go into jail and my mom would try and make the best of things. And then as a small child, my dad had moved us out and my mom had her struggle with addiction so we were missing mom in the home we were missing what home really was we were staying in someone else's home and I couldn't wait to get out of anybody's home so at the age of 15 I had my child and I was looking for a way out And the day after I graduated high school, I I moved out. I was able to utilize a program for teen moms, and it helped me to get a house. Actually, it was an apartment up in Palmdale. And at that time, that was so underdeveloped that they didn't even have satellite connections where you could watch cable. So we were, like, watching TV on DVDs all the time. (laughs) That tells you how long back that was because now Palmdale is like booming with all of the people that they're moving out of the Los Angeles area. And um, I got married and moved in with the husband at the time. And because of how violent that situation was, I knew it wouldn't work, but I put in every bit of effort to try and make it work. That was a, a lesson that I felt came from like the Christian religion of long suffering and this meekness and this kind, loving heart will one day see the promised land. And the promised land to me looked very different. So I've become so isolated in this domestic abuse relationship that I was afraid to go outside because there was constant threats on my life. Like if, I know you were outside. It's going to be some shit. And so I stopped checking my mailbox, stopped taking out the trash. And it was just like trying to live in the house with these small children, believing that the husband is out working and doing what he needs to do to take care of the home because he hardly came home, which was fine because as long as he was gone, we weren't fighting. I didn't make a big deal about him not being home. I was glad But um, the sheriff knocks on the door, and I remember it so vividly. I was standing in the kitchen washing the dishes. I loved the lavender dish soap that I would use, and I'm washing the dishes. My son's like, Mom, someone's at the door, and I go to open the door, and the sheriff's there, and he's like, you have about five minutes to grab everything you can and vacate the premises. And I'm like, oh, shoot, it's real. And I look at my children. 
And I think, okay, socks and shoes and jackets. And that's what we gathered together. And the first instinct was to go to the park. So we chilled out at the park until it got really dark. And then the children were like, Mom, when are we going to go home? It's dark. And they were seeing things flying. And they were like, I think there's bats out here. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I don't think there's bats. So we go back walking down the street. And I'm trying to figure stuff out. And still afraid that the abuser is going to see me and try and piece together why am I not in the house and want to start a fight. And I remember there's this very small window that was over the bathroom, which was like in the backyard space. And we would leave it open because that was the only way to keep some air going through when you would take a shower. And Melvin, the one who did not want you to put your hands out while he went on the monkey bars. I'm thinking like this dude is so small and so strong. If I could get him through that window, then we got a place to sleep tonight. And that's what I did. So got that screen down, pushed Melvin through. He <laughs> fell in the tub. Like I'm like, Oh shoot. My, I hope my baby is okay. But anyhow, he unlocked the door and we slept there and we would have to leave out at like four in the morning because I knew that if someone caught us in there, that I would have my children taken from me and I would most likely be in jail. So um, we did that for a while. And then um, the abuser caught up with me. I was trying to do my very best, right? So I'm, I would hang out at the parks. I would hang out at the libraries. And then one day I get this job and I'm coming home from the job and the abuser is like, I know where your ass is at. And I'm like, oh shoot, now what? And so I called the police and I'm like, look, I need to get a few things. And my abuser is like after me. And they're like, no, ma'am, we're taking you to a shelter. And I'm like, why take me? Why don't you find him? And why don't you get him out of the street so I could just figure out my life? But it was like a blessing in disguise. So I ended up in the shelter. The children had went to their grandparents for a while. I got those last few checks and I humbled myself and asked to go back home. And that looks like the chaos and confusion that had me so disheveled before. At the age of 16, it was my first attempt of suicide. And I was more afraid of them to release me back into home than to stay in the mental institution. So with that humbling of oneself and going back to home, I'm like, oh, shoot, now how are we going to get out of this? And so that looked like having boyfriends sleeping over at this friend's house, going over to this person's house. And all along, because I never really knew how to identify healthy people or I never knew how to navigate the homeless system. Like me and my children were constantly being subjected to more trauma and more abuse, like on a constant basis. And that was like the only way I could figure things out up until this point where I remember the guy who was like, you going to marry me? And I'm like, nope, not marrying anybody. He's like, well, then if you're not going to marry me, then you got to move out. And I was like, okay, I'm moving out then. He was like, how are you going to move out? You don't have a job. You don't have a place. Like, there's no way that you could move out. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get it. I signed up for housing in 1998 when I had that child at 15 because I wanted a possibility for him to have some sort of stability in his life. And while I was sitting there in that house with this guy who, who's been very rude and mean to me because I didn't want to marry him, 
there's a, a maintenance guy who used to clean up the property where my mom used to live. And he's seen this packet in the trash can with my name on it. He gets the packet and he takes it down to where my mom lives at this time. And he says, I think this packet is important. And because Lorraine has been always very kind to me, I felt the need to take it out of the trash and bring it to you. My mom, she's like, Lorraine, you need to come down here right now and see this packet. And so we head down to that office in Alhambra. And I'm like, okay, I'm just going to drop it off. My mom like, oh, no, no, you're not just dropping it off. We need to tell these people. And like that lady at the front desk reception, my mom's like telling her, you need to get her house right now. You don't understand what's going on. By that time, I had talked to my mom about going on a vacation. And vacation for me was to live in, in the, inside of the mental institution. I talked to her about me signing the rights over as, as a parent. She didn't know that this was my main plan to no longer participate in life. But she knew that I was sick and tired of the cycle of not having stability and staying with folks and trying to figure out life and trying to help the children and having these struggles with addiction and these mental breakdowns and like this, it just kept going and kept going and kept going and I couldn't take it anymore that I was willing to give up the only hope that I ever had for life and I'm glad that I didn't. So my mom talked to that woman and um, I had to get some sort of a clearance of where I was staying at the time on the application. So I took it down to the office, the South Scatter Sites office. And the woman says to me, well, Lorraine, aren't you staying with that guy? Why are you trying to move? And I said, ma'am, you don't understand. And I started to tell her the things that me and my children were dealing with. She was like, oh, no, I would have never thought and I'm like, of course, I know how to make it look pretty. I've been doing this all my life. I know how to show up looking like everything is okay. And she was like, yeah, well, I'll do what I can. And within two weeks, they were like, hey, come down and pick up your key. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I got that key. And the guy was like, how'd you do that? And I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm moving out. <laughs> and the kids were so excited. It, we didn't have to have anything in there my son was like it doesn't matter mom I'm going to watch over the place you figure out what you need to move around I'm going to just get my my bed covers and I'll sleep on the floor I'll make sure the place is okay I'll make sure the place is safe and I'm like this is great and then it was like okay how does healing really begin because then I was diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic because I was super hyper vigilant because of everything that I've been going through, I was always checking windows, always checking doors. The guy that I had left, he would call the police and tell them that I was leaving the children. So I had the police knocking at my door constantly. And they were like, this makes no sense. How can someone keep calling talking about there's no adult in the home and you obviously keep answering the door? And I'm like, please stop coming to my house. I love my children. I'll be here for them. And then it was like, let me see how... I can begin to help my children to heal. So we started therapy. I started doing domestic violence classes. I started to get really connected to the community. And that's where it was like social justice all the way. And if I had known that that was a job when I was younger at nine years old, when I realized I did not want to live that life, I would have been like the most ready advocate ever. I come to this work knowing that there's amazing human beings who are out there on the streets or who are in the pipelines to end up on the streets because of the disparities that have been put in place all the way back from when they said, oh, slavery is over. But there was no there was no structure put in place 
to hold the people, to house the people. And so I show up here in this way because I know that people need someone to say, hey, I support you in this, whatever that looks like. I just want to thank you because that is such a powerful story. And I've known you for years and I've heard your story before. I've heard your story in many different settings. And every time um, it just brings me to tears because of your bravery and your courage and your love of your family. It's really amazing. So I'm so grateful that you were willing to share that with our listeners. I want to know, Molly, how did you get into the work of homelessness? I don't tell my story a lot because I worry that people will get the wrong impression. But it, of course, shapes how I approach this work and why I do this work. So I grew up with quite a bit of privilege. My family had some money. Um, I went to private school. I had a lot of material things that I needed, but my family also had a lot of problems. And my mom was a heavy drinker. Um, she also had some mental health stuff going on, undiagnosed, so I don't know what it was, but there was clearly a lot going on. And when my parents got divorced when I was 11, she pretty quickly moved in a boyfriend who was abusive. And my home just did not feel safe. It wasn't a place of stability or safety for me. And that led to me leaving home when I was 15. And there was a couple things that happened that really shaped my career because of leaving home. The first is that I was a juvenile delinquent. I got into a lot of trouble. I was really rebellious. And so one of the times that I was arrested, I was sentenced to community service. I think I was 16 years old. And I got sentenced to community service at a nonprofit in Portland, Maine, where I grew up. Um, and I did my community service. And the executive director took an interest in me. And she asked me when I was done with my community service, would I continue to stay involved? And would I be on an advisory committee for a project they were starting? They wanted to do something for homeless teenagers because there were a lot of homeless teenagers showing up at the local soup kitchen where there were a lot of homeless men who were alcoholics. And they were really worried about the kids who were homeless mixing with the adults who were alcoholics and what would happen. And so they wanted to come up with some other place for the kids to go. Um, and I wasn't homeless. I had a roof over my head. I think at the time I was renting a room in some woman's house. I was going to school and I had a roof over my head, but I didn't live with my parents. And so she thought I would have something to add. And so I volunteered because she was really the first person who thought that I had some value in the world. I think everybody else, all the other adults thought I was kind of throwing my life away. Um, and this woman, this executive director, didn't treat me like I was throwing my life away. And I just ate it up. I volunteered. I showed up for everything. I went to every meeting. Um, and by the time I was 18, she actually hired me as a peer advocate in a drop-in center they opened for homeless teenagers. And that program's actually still there today. It's called the Teen Center in Portland, Maine. Um, so it's kind of fun. I went back and visited a couple years ago. So that certainly shaped my career because I never left nonprofits, um, actually, until I went to work for the county. I always worked for nonprofits after being that peer advocate position when I was 18. The other thing that really shaped my career is that 
Even though I had a roof over my head during those years, I didn't have a real home. I was often moving every three or four months. I was often renting rooms, either with roommates or in random people's houses. Um, And it was really lonely being 15, 16, 17 years old and not having a family that looked like everybody else's family. I felt very much on my own in the world. And I really didn't feel like I had a home for about 10 years. I mean, I went to college. I, Like I said, I had roofs over my head, but it never felt like a home. And it wasn't really until I met the man who'd become my husband when I was 25 that I started to get some stability in my life. And I think for that reason, I really believe that home is transformative and that our work of ending homelessness isn't just about putting a roof over people's heads because I know what it's like to have a roof but not a home. You have to do something more meaningful. People need that security and stability and safety of a real home to thrive. And I certainly needed that and now try and help other people find that. Loray, we're going to be exploring the idea of housing justice in this podcast. Can you talk about what housing justice means to you? Certainly. I think back to uh, how I experienced housing as a child. So there was homes that we were able to occupy. And then I think about how when dad went away, we had to move around. So again, touching on that stability piece I don't remember names of schools because there was so much moving around. So when I think of the justice piece and how it connects to stability and what is put in place when you have that stability, I heard a guy tell a story about how his parents had passed as a child and everyone in the community like supported the fact that he could have been housed. He could have been homeless if they had not, like he called it, bumper rail guards around his life and he ended up going to college and being successful but when I think about the choice that my dad made because of what was going on in the community and how he thought if I'm a gang member then I could protect my family if I sell drugs then I could take care of my family financially so where's the justice in understanding that people make decisions based on what's available to them what they see is available Then moving into where I am today and looking at how I'm this advocate in the community, yet and still, I feel unsafe. My daughter, she's constantly looking at the crime rates in the community. My son is healing from being shot by the community that I was out fighting for. In any given day, we can take a drive down the street and we can see a dead body. And these are triggers That makes it very unstable. Then I think about how I've done all this great work. I've allowed myself to heal just enough to be able to say to my children, I want to support your healing. And now we have this issue where you're graduating from college and I don't have the resources to support that. I don't have what it takes to put up those structures to make sure that you have that possibility of going to college without worrying about the financial piece. Where's the justice in that? In understanding that for many years, we've had folks who've dedicated their lives to working, but don't have enough to give them that leverage to live in adjustable means. And so 
I want to connect the justice to safe, to sustainable, to how do we put up structures to where a child who has nothing but hopes and possibilities can dream up one day I could go to college and that be possible for them. And one day I could own a home and that be possible for them. How do we dismantle the pipelines where folks are falling into homelessness constantly on a daily basis and start to build up structures where there's a flow of how your life could work? That's what housing justice looks like to me, a flow of how your life could work. That is so powerful, Larray. And my experience working in this field for a while now is that we have these incredible blinders and they prevent us from seeing these really deep legacies that are still shaping the community we live in and people's different experience of the community we live in and these wildly different experiences based on where you're born and who your parents are and what's going on in your neighborhood. Um, And it's one of the things for me when we think about this podcast and housing justice and what does this topic mean Part of it is trying to make visible those legacies that still shape things today. And for me, it comes really down to the two original sins of the country. The fact that this country was formed by colonists coming here and committing genocide against Native Americans and stealing their land, and then taking that land and engaging in chattel slavery some of the worst exploitation of human beings in world history and trying to use that land to get maximum profit, no matter what that meant for the human beings who toiled the land. And then even as we might have made legal progress in ending slavery, obviously slavery just took a different form during the Jim Crow era and the era of mass incarceration And we can see it today in our policies, and yet I feel like people have these blinders up where they don't understand things like the mortgage income deduction and the racist history of why we put more money into subsidizing homeowners than we do into helping people pay their rent. The creation of zoning in and of itself, land use zoning, was because we wanted to keep people of color out of communities. Working in policy and advocacy in these areas, they can be used to maintain the status quo or they can be used to disrupt the status quo. And the status quo often is connected to displacement and exclusion. But there are these opportunities in these windows where we can do something different and try and build a different city. And I really think at this moment in time when homelessness is such a great crisis, we have a window of opportunity to look at it in a different way and try and do something different and intervene in a way that's more meaningful. Molly, uh, it's been amazing being able to work with you and knowing that you're connected to the county And I'd like to hear more about how things have changed since 2014. Yeah, so like I said, we started to see a lot more encampments on the sidewalks, a lot of people living in their vehicles, people throughout Los Angeles living on the streets and the sidewalks. 
Starting in 2015, we started to see increases in the numbers of people on the sidewalks. And Los Angeles is really different from some of the other parts of the country because the majority of folks who experience homelessness in Los Angeles are unsheltered. So the latest homeless count, the January 2019 count, showed that there are over 59,000 people on any given night who are homeless in Los Angeles, the majority of them living outside. So some people do get shelter. I believe it's about a third of people who are homeless are in some form of shelter, but the other two thirds are not in a place fit for human habitation. So that can mean the sidewalk, that can mean the riverbed, that can mean living in your vehicle. It's an extraordinary number of people. And I also just think it's important for people to understand that 59,000 is one night. So in a given year, there's actually many more people who go in and out of homelessness. So the number generally is considered to be about three times that number of who's on the streets in a given night who might experience homelessness in a given year. It's a much higher number of people who experience some form of homelessness because most people are only homeless for short periods of time. And so people go in and out of homelessness. The other thing to know about that number is that because people are living outside, they're exposed to the weather, they're exposed to issues around poor hygiene, they're exposed to illness. Um, So we also know that this year, over a thousand people will die on the streets, a thousand people experiencing homelessness, which is more than double the rate of homicide in the county. So more people, significantly more people are dying of homelessness than they are of homicide, which is really just so extraordinary that we can be in the richest country in the world and have a thousand people dying because they don't have a roof over their heads. We also know that California is sort of the epicenter of homelessness at this point. And one of the things we'll explore I hope in a future episode, because it's no coincidence that California is the epicenter of the sort of new economy in the age of technology and this economy based on ideas, we're the epicenter of that. And we're also the epicenter of homelessness. And those things are actually linked because we now know that prosperity is actually driving homelessness, um, which is not what was the case 10 years ago. So that's one of the big things that's really changed in Los Angeles and in California and the entire West Coast. So we do have a third partner. It's not just you and me, Luray. Um, We have Bill Lance, our producer. So Bill, why did you agree to do a podcast about housing justice? Well, I moved to Los Angeles in 2011. And over the 20-teens, I watched a city transform. I watched the street that I rode my bicycle down to go to work every day slowly get packed from end to end with encampments. The bridge at the base of my street when I moved into my first place in Echo Park was completely full of people living their lives. These people who were my neighbors and who I would walk past every day and not even give a second thought to what was going on in their lives. I met my partner who actually works in homelessness. And I was really surprised by some of the thought that has gone into policy 
And the things that seem somewhat counterintuitive at first, as far as being solutions, for instance, that when a formerly homeless person gets moved into an apartment, they provide them a television. And I was a little incredulous, like just giving people TVs, like that seems crazy to me. But when she explained the difference that that makes in housing retention and keeping that person in a house and giving them something to do and keeping their focus and attention and just giving them that stability and the difference that it makes in their lives, I realized that I had prejudged the situation that there was so much more to learn. So I would just hope that through this podcast, both I and whoever's listening can continue to expand their understanding and keep an open mind about the real solutions and possible ways to really address the problem, which is really beyond any sort of scale or comprehension for someone who has not been to Los Angeles compared to even, you know, where I'm from in the Rust Belt. It's a whole different factor of seriousness here in Los Angeles. So it's something that I hope that we can really open people's minds up about and get people thinking about. Yeah, I think it's exciting because it's this topic that everybody's talking about and it is something that's going to take a lot of policy interventions But it also takes really understanding human beings and what they're experiencing and what you were talking about and the loneliness and isolation that people have felt when they're living on the sidewalk and people are averting their gaze and treating them like they're not human beings and how powerful that is and how people take that into their apartments. And we have to use tools like televisions, which sounds silly. And I'm sure there's somebody out there who will send us some horrible comment about giving away televisions. But we have to do it because people are experiencing such profound isolation. And they've been dehumanized in such profound ways that we need any way to make people feel more comfortable in their skin um, so that they can just get through the day. Um, and not go back to self-destructive behaviors that are going to put their life on a really bad trajectory. And sometimes binge-watching a good television show can keep you from doing something really self-destructive. So whatever works. But it's exciting, the idea of these, like, having to really understand humans in this deep way and how fragile and how emotional and how much support people need to thrive and trying to figure out how to do that in a meaningful way is actually the part of the work that I find most exciting. Yeah. And I also think it's important to realize that compassion isn't misplaced. So often the immediate knee-jerk reaction is to criminalize homelessness and to find these people who have no money like it's such an absurd and self-sabotaging way to think about the problem and to deal with the problem that we should just lock everybody up and put everybody in jail and I don't know anybody who has been properly rehabilitated by being in jail people don't come out of jail dancing down the street and go and get a job and move into their apartment right away, saved up the money for their down payment. Like they're in jail and they come out with a network of other people they know who are criminals and they fall into even worse situations than before they went into jail. So just reimagining ways that we can compassionately deal with the problem in sometimes even counterintuitive ways and also understanding the fact that homelessness is not a natural 
occurrence in human communities and that it's not something that just accidentally happened and that there are actually policies in place that actively make people become homeless and that when we can identify those policies and the ways in which we could change them to ameliorate the situation, it just reduces the suffering for everybody. Yeah, it's really interesting to talk to people of different generations and how they understand this issue, because before the 1980s, there wasn't street homelessness. There were certainly people who were vulnerable, and there were people who would get intoxicated and sleep on the streets for a night or two, but there actually wasn't a population of people living permanently on the sidewalks. Most people... And pretty much all people, even people who were living on government assistance and welfare, could afford a roof over their head. There weren't people living on the sidewalks permanently. And that really emerged in the 1980s. And so when you talk to people of different generations, older folks are like, yeah, homelessness is a recent phenomenon. And clearly there's something we could do if this emerged over the last few decades to change this. But then there's also lots of people who were born after 1980 and have never seen anything different than the sidewalks covered in people. And I do think a lot about that just as a mom and what that means for my kids growing up in the city and not knowing anything different and what they think of adults and what they think of our city and our community that we allow so many people to live on the sidewalk. I think too, also in Los Angeles, the change that I've seen is that, I mean, I remember in the early 90s, growing up in Ohio, hearing about Skid Row and knowing that there was this place that was blocks and blocks of people living on the streets. But watching the problem spread out of that contained area in downtown Los Angeles to any freeway overpass in the city that you go to, there's going to be people living it in any sort of easement that is accessible with or without trespassing, any open space, there are people who have pitched tents and are living in, frankly, often dangerous situations. It is a problem that is metastasizing and growing out of control. Yeah, I remember being a child, a small child, and my dad, he put us in the car and he took us down the skid row and he made us get out and walk in front of the cars. He drove really slowly. It was dark and he had the lights on. And he said, if you don't do well in school, This is what your life will be like. And today as an adult, after having the experience of homelessness with my children, which didn't look like what it looked like when I was a kid and people were coming out of boxes or people were going into boxes, mine was jumping around from place to place to place, having to go into a shelter. So what is the prevention? My dad said, if you do well in school, you won't have this type of lifestyle, but it wasn't any other parameter set up like let's work on financial planning let's make sure that you have the tools to pick healthy relationships let's put in things that will help you to not fall into this it was just do well in school and i did and i still exactly they don't assign apartments based on your gpa and they certainly don't set your rent based on your gpa right right and i did really well in school because i thought that in doing well in school, that my life would be well. That was not the answer. So I do understand that they push, get them some education, get them some career planning. But when you have these broken people, they can't even focus on let's go to school 
or let's get a job. That's the chorus that I hear so often is, well, why don't they just get a job or don't give them any money? They're just going to go drink. If you don't have a home, how are you supposed to ever get a job? What do you put on your job application under the 101? The amazing thing is how many people are working and homeless. I mean, that's the sort of mind blowing thing is today because rents have increased so high and your rent can be extraordinarily high regardless of your GPA. We have so many people who are working and living in their cars or living in a shelter. One of the things that just blows me away is that the data shows that one in five community college students has experienced housing instability. Sometimes that's being actively homeless. Sometimes that's living on somebody's couch. But one in five college students? Like, how can we not help people who are going to college with paying their rent so that they can focus on their studies? I mean, that's the part where I'm just like, okay. I really don't understand how we're approaching this issue in this country, if that's our reality. And that is certainly unheard of in most parts of the world, to have homeless college students and homeless people who are working. We have homeless people who work at Disneyland and sleep in their cars out in the staff parking lot. Anaheim passed a $15 an hour minimum wage, and Disney says that the law doesn't apply to them because of a legal loophole. Yeah, there is a lot of work to do. Yeah, We have some really big topics to explore in this podcast. Um, Lorraine, I'm curious. We've got some great episodes planned. What are you most excited about? I am definitely excited about a conversation with race and homelessness. And then there's like this exploration of hearing from folks who are experiencing it hearing from folks who have experienced it, and even folks who are supporting others who have experienced it. And if you've never participated in someone's life who had experienced homelessness, I would ask you to please do so because it gives you an insight that's well beyond any human understanding because the journey of their life looks different every step no matter how much they begin to succeed and they increase in finances, there's this thing that happens when you have that experience of, I don't have anywhere to go. I don't know what next to do. I don't know where the meal is coming from. I don't know if I'm going to be safe. You know, that fight or flight, that's, it's constantly on. And there's a constant having to train yourself of, let me take a deep breath. I am okay. I am here right now. Let me touch something. Let me taste the taste in my mouth. Let me bring myself back to the present. But then you go back out in the world and you still have that in you, in your psyche. And it's an ongoing process. But I'm excited. I'm super excited because we're having the conversation. And I'd like to know what are you all excited about in the upcoming episodes? Yeah, for me, I'm really excited because working on this issue every day, I sit at a lot of tables where we talk about this from a policy perspective, and we are going to do interviews on the podcast, and we are going to have that perspective. But I find that to really understand the issue, you do have to talk to people with lived experience. And when people ask me, what's the number one thing I can do to address homelessness? My response is always, 
get to know somebody who's experienced homelessness. Like that's where to start. And so we'll be helping you through the podcast by sharing personal stories of people with lived experience. And I'm also really excited because we're also going to have artistic expression and we're going to have songs and poems and different ways to understand this issue. Because if we spend too much time in our heads, we forget about our hearts. And this is an issue that really affects people's hearts. And we have to come from a place of understanding the experience with our own hearts. So I'm excited to do that through the artistic expression, the songs, the poems. Maybe we'll come up with other forms of artistic expression as we go through this. We'll see. Bill, what about you? What are you excited about? The thing that has been really compelling to me is hearing the specific and personal stories of people who have fallen into homelessness, seeing misfortunes that could happen to me or you or anyone listening easily and just hearing how th- that trajectory slowly spirals down and the real emotional anguish and feelings that people have to cope with putting a specific face and a real human aspect onto a concept of the problem rather than just you know quoting statistics and policies, I think is really what has been the most moving to me. Okay, now that we have all this excitement, I want to thank our very first listeners for listening to this podcast. And I want to invite them to our second episode with Monique King Velen. We're going to be exploring the topic of race and homelessness. And I just want to invite folks to get to know somebody who is or has experienced homelessness and keep listening. So thank you for listening to our very first episode. Uh, We hope that you'll keep listening. We hope that you'll subscribe and rate and review the podcast wherever you get your podcasts and make sure to tell your friends, tell other people about the podcast. We also are going to have a question and answer episode later in the season. So we encourage you to reach out to us with any questions you have. We have the email address housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's housingjusticepodcast at gmail.com. Send us any questions you have so that we can answer your questions later in the season. And feel free to send us any comments or ideas as well. We are going out today with a piece by my son, Melvin. It's called The God That I Serve. Now, this is a true family project that features Melvin, myself, as well as my younger son, Royalty. Get this, realign my purpose, see a whole new vision.
decision Maybe start my own business Living is so relentless When you knowing what your worth is You see the tables turning I don't trip up on them haters Tell them I see you later Don't worry about who tripping Just stay focused on ambition And walk into the favor As I step into the season Knowing everything happens For a reason Saying Almighty, almighty Almighty, oh Lord Almighty, almighty Almighty Lord, Almighty, Almighty, Almighty Lord, Almighty Lord, Almighty Lord. This life that I live, I can't do this on my own. But when I gave it to Him, all my problems made me strong. I feel so good in the end because I know I'm not alone. I can always call on Him, and I don't even need my phone. This God that I serve, He has turned me to the better. When I've been in the dirt, and all my burdens felt so heavy, but He's lifting my hurt. Just know that sin ain't really dead if Jesus died for it first Yeah Go repent for all your sins Don't act like they wasn't yours He seen all you did Who once kept it from getting worse The Lord's protecting his kids Just make sure you wait in the waters Coming back for all his So don't make his decision hard He's only taking his kids The obeying sons and daughters So let his light shine along his And make sure you praise your father Let his light shine through you And follow the Lord's commands Now you see in the real You starting to follow when it's tight And you feel when he hear you Yes, God, you the man. Yes, God, you the man. Yes, God, yes, you can. Yes, God, you the man. Yes, God, you the man. Yes, God, yes, you can. Yes, God, yes, you can. Almighty, 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 The Housing Justice LA podcast is made possible by a Stanton Fellowship from the Durfee Foundation. The podcast is produced by Bill Lance with intro music provided courtesy of Adam Goldman.